Good morning, guys. It is June the 6th, 2020, and I'm Harlan, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona. And the subject of what we're going to be discussing this morning is one of the most exciting subjects in OA, in any 12-step environment, and it is on page 17 there is a solution. Now, before we do anything, we're going to look very closely at the title of this chapter. There is a solution. Now, we have to remember that we are living in June of 2020. So for us, there are many, many 12-step programs, and there are treatment centers, and there's all manner of situations where a human being can get some relief from their addiction. But for thousands of years, thousands of years before this book came out on April the 10th, 1939, there was nowhere to turn. They had the Towns Hospital in New York, and they had Bellevue Hospital in New York, and there were certain uh, drying out hospitals across the country, but none of those hospitals offered anything in the way of recovery because they didn't know. They didn't have a clue. And we've talked about the Oxford group, but most drunks, most addicts, they didn't know anything about the Oxford group. They didn't know anything about anything. They just knew they were drunk, and they knew they wanted their next drink. They wanted their next fix. So to them, there was no solution. And for thousands of years, shysters, crooks, con people, and all kinds of, of people would sell snake oil and all this other garbage. And if you rubbed it on yourself or you drank it or you took it, you wouldn't drink anymore. And, of course, what do we know? It was all baloney. It was all garbage. None of it worked. None of it worked. And there was nobody to point to where you could say, yes, this guy recovered from his alcoholism. Notice I didn't say cured. I said recovered from. And the guys that were selling these things would always tell you lies and stories about people in other towns which were very difficult to get to at that time, they would tell you stories about how they sobered up this guy and sobered up that guy. All you have to do is plunk down $2 and you get a bottle of this stuff and by drinking this, it'll relieve your, it'll cure your alcoholism. And what do we know? What are the three properties of alcoholism? What are the three properties of any addiction? It's permanent. It's progressive and it's fatal. Permanent, progressive, and fatal. If I stop working the steps, I'll be back at Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'll be back at the convenience store in a very short period of time. And once that avalanche starts, once that landslide starts and that physical allergy is triggered, then it would be 
death within a very short period of time. I don't know if I have another recovery in me, but I do know this. I don't have another relapse in me. I'm 66 years old. My heart, my gallbladder, my liver, they've had it in terms of the onslaught of the damage that this disease can cause. I don't know that. Now, let's look at this sentence. Let's look at the title of this chapter in a little bit of a different way, and let's put the accent on a different word. There is a solution. Now, there is much debate in OA about how many ways there is to recover. And there is even a line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that says, we have no monopoly on God. I'm going to talk about me. I'm not going to talk about you. I'm not going to talk about anyone here today except me. This is what I'm going to say about me. For me, Harlan G. of Scottsdale, Arizona, There is one way for me to recover. Maybe you have a different way. I'm not judging your way. I'm not saying your way is wrong. I'm saying it probably would be dangerous for me to try it. There is a solution. And what is that solution? That solution is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as worked out of this big book. And what step is chapter two. Chapter two is the is another one of the steps, another one of the chapters, excuse me, where we're still working step one. Step one is the doctor's opinion, Bill's story. Chapter two, there is a solution. And chapter three, more about alcoholism. Those are all the chapters that are dedicated completely to step number one. So there is a solution. So there is a solution, very promising. There is a solution, very promising, that I have no choices to make. See, if you give me choices, I'm going to start thinking. And once I start thinking, I'm dead. I'm dead. One of the worst things you can get me to start doing is thinking. It has to be straightforward for me. It has to be very, very simple for me. And when I sponsor, I see lots of people thinking, and thinking for me is not good. And when I say thinking, I don't mean you don't use your brain for certain things. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is when it comes to recovery for me, I'm not talking about you, talking about me. If it's really complicated, really tough, or if I have to really think about it, I'm probably doing it wrong. This is a very simple kind of downhill program. When I say downhill, what I mean is it's really much simpler than most people want to make it. In our zeal to make it more effective, we start adding and subtracting and changing. And if it's not verifiable in the big book as it's written, then I better be very, very careful because I'm probably treading into water that is shark-infested and Twinkie-infested water. I have to stay to the simple, stay to the basic, stay to the downhill journey that is recovery. Let's look at page 17. There is a solution. Simply says, 
we of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. Now, this is obviously a little hype here because there weren't thousands that they knew at that time. There weren't even a hundred, but Bill was a little bit of a of a huckster too. He was a he was a salesman too, and he wanted the book to sell, so he put in thousands. Now it would be millions, obviously. So his his exaggeration was only temporary. Now it would be millions if we rewrote the book today. There's not only millions of people. There's millions of groups. And an Overeaters Anonymous is in 60 countries, and Alcoholics Anonymous is in 176 countries. <laughs> now. We are average Americans today, obviously, that as, as we're going to experience next weekend. And for those of you who are uh, veterans of what we did in uh, Great Britain, in the United Kingdom, for the Irish group, and Maria could tell you more about that, but we would say we are average citizens of the world. And also, in July, on three successive Sundays, for those who want to do it, we're going to be taking a Zoom trip to Jerusalem, Israel. And on three successive Sundays in July, we're going to be doing a retreat for the Israelis. So we would definitely say these are things that have affected everybody in the world. We are average Americans. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. When you read that line, we are people who normally would not mix, I am reminded of a of a time, I'm reminded of times when we're going to the OA birthday, just for example, the OA birthday, or let's take another example, it could be the Vision for You convention in Newark. Many of you, or some of you, were in the convention in Newark, and many of you have been to the OA birthday, which is in Los Angeles, California. I don't know what the status is going to be of this year but I'm actually wearing a T-shirt right now that says Sunlight of the Spirit that I got at the OA birthday a couple years, a couple, three years ago. And sometimes you'll see in the lobby of the hotel, you'll see someone and they're talking to three, four other people. And these are people that are from different parts of the country. These are people who don't know each other in any other venue. These are people who speak with different accents. They're from different parts of the country. Maybe they're different colors, creeds, religions. And the beautiful thing about it is that they can share and they can mix and be at home because we speak and we understand the language of the heart. And we're going to be talking about that quite a bit today, the magic of the language of the heart. 
but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner, the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. And I'm thinking about the Titanic. And steerage is the cheapest part of the ship. And when you go across the Atlantic, you would go by ship. There, you know, air traffic wasn't as prevalent even in 1939 when the book was written. You usually took a steamship across the ocean. And I'm thinking about the Titanic and the steerage and the captain's t- steerage was anybody that was poor. Your room was below deck. You didn't have the finest food. You didn't have the finest accommodations. You were probably sleeping in a bunk bed. You just wanted to get across the Atlantic. And it took my dad uh, days and days and days at sea to cross the Atlantic when he came to this country. And he was in the steerage section of the boat. And then you have the captain's table. You had to be the right race the right religion, the right background. You had to have the right amount of money to be at the captain's table. And everything was so fine and so the best, the best silverware, the best cuisine, the finest food, the most beautiful accommodations. That was the captain's table. And you had to be invited to dine at the captain's table. And then... They hit the iceberg that night, that that April night, and they hit that iceberg, and then some of them got rescued on the Carpathia, and from the Carpathia, they came to New York, and when they got off the boat, they had experienced something that only they would have had experience. Anyone else can only imagine what it felt like to be in the in the Titanic when it was going down, but they experienced it and they experienced it firsthand. And one of the things that is so interesting about Overeaters Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or any 12-step program, and I talk to men all the time who have been north of say three, four, five hundred pounds. And I tell them about different experiences that I've had where I couldn't get out of a chair and I couldn't sit comfortably, I couldn't stand comfortably, I couldn't walk. And I would tell them about different experiences that I've had because my body was so disformed from the, from the disease, from the weight, and how my stomach would hang down. And I couldn't get in a car and I couldn't get out of a car. And I had no, I mean, I had no hope and I wanted to die and all I could do was eat. And there are other experiences that I can relate to them and they to me and their eyes fly open. Even if they're on the phone, I can hear their breathing changing. I can hear their respiration changing because never before in their life have they ever spoken to somebody who could relate to any of this. And when you are above a certain weight, you believe that these things are not spoken of because no one's going to understand. And what I also found out, and this is even more profound, 
You don't have to be four or 500 pounds for that to be true. There are things that anorexics go through. There are things that exercise bulimics go through and laxative bulimics go through and restrictors go through that you believe if you are one of those things because, see, not everything is the compulsive overeating side. I had the compulsive overeating side. Excuse me. I'm just going <clears> to <throat> grab this. Hang on one second. Okay. I, I can't get through much of this without water, so before I begin this, I always have two liters of the coldest water this side of Lake Michigan right here. But anyway, there are things that the anorexic goes through or the bulimic goes through that you start to believe are secret unto you. And part of this disease is to keep these things inside of us and not discuss them with anybody because we don't run into people that would understand Let's keep going. Unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling we have of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. These things are, are secrets because we feel like no one's going to understand. Many of us, and I'm not knocking therapy, I'm not knocking psychiatry, I'm not knocking psychology, I'm not knocking it. But m most of the time, unless these practitioners are addicts themselves in recovery, they themselves don't relate to it. So you begin to have a secret life. And the life that, you, that I had was the life of Harlan, the guy that didn't have, that was emasculated physically and emasculated mentally. I started having the life of a guy who had to shove towels underneath his hanging stomach to prevent the skin from rubbing together. I started being the guy who constantly peed in his pants and constantly pooped in his pants because I couldn't control myself because of the massive, massive, massive amounts of foods that I was consuming on a daily basis. I was incontinent, and I smelled horribly, and I was dirty, and I didn't take care of myself. I didn't have any hygiene. I, my skin was dirty. I couldn't really shower and get clean. I didn't brush my hair. I didn't brush my teeth. I didn't know how to take care of myself. I had such swelling in my lower extremities, such swelling in my lower legs, that wearing socks was extremely painful, and it would cut into my flesh. And the pain of standing and the pain of moving were unbearable. So, of course, I ate. And the more I ate, the worse those things got. And the worse those things got, the more I ate. And the more I ate, the worse those things got. And the worse those things got, the more I ate. And I wanted to die from the time I was seven years old, eight years old, because all I got was screaming from doctors and screaming from from from. Uh, parents of my friends and screaming from rabbis and screaming from people that I was no good because I was fat. 
that there was no part of me that was acceptable because people that are overweight are unacceptable in the culture that we're in in the 1960s. If you see movies or TV shows from the 1960s, people were stick thin, stick thin, and everything that you wore was skin tight. The tighter it was, the more in style it was. The skirts, the pants, the dresses, the the shirts, everything was form-fitted to the body. And there was no baggy clothes or there was no loose-fitting clothes in the 1960s. And so even at a very early age of 10 and 12, I couldn't look like the other kids. But what we're talking about here is the language of the heart. And see, I, like yourself, I have many, many friends. I'm very blessed. I don't have relatives. I don't have cousins, and I don't have sisters and brothers, and I don't have uh, whatever. My daughter doesn't speak to me. She hasn't spoken to me in years. I, I don't, I'm very alone in that way. But I have a lot of wonderful friends, a lot of wonderful friends that I've known for 50, 60 years. And I talk to them all the time, every day in some cases. But they don't understand what you understand. See, I can talk to any one of you that's on the line now, and I can tell you things I could never, I could tell it to them, but they would never, ever, ever understand it. Never but you understand it, and I know everything about them. I know their parents, I knew their grandparents, whatever it is, but you understand me in a way that is deeper and more profound and more loving and more sympathetic than anyone else in the world. The real blessing of OA for me is that I didn't come to OA to find God, but through OA, I not only found God, but I found a group of his children. And the group of his children that I found, that I've come to love and cherish, are you. You are the great gift in my life. Your stories, your three-minute shares on vision, your shares on our meeting from the Scottsdale Club, some of you come and you, you dial into our meetings and you share. You are the ones that gave me the hope. You are the ones that whispered on that last ember of my heart, and it burst into flames, and I went from a boy who wanted to die to a boy who wanted to live, even though I knew it would be years and years and years before I could be in anything like a body. I knew it would be, I had to lose 200 pounds to be a 500-pound person. I had to lose 300 pounds to be a 400 person. Are you listening to these numbers I'm throwing out? And I had to lose 400 pounds just to be a 300-pound person. And along the way, I still got abuse and I still got rejection even in the rooms of OA, even in the fellowship, there were people who said horrible, ugly things to me. 
I remember once at Swedish Covenant Hospital, there was a woman, she asked me in a very nice way, could you not sit next to me? She says, because if you have a heart attack, I'm afraid you're going to fall on me, and if you fall on me, you're going to break my leg. She said it very nicely, but it was one of the ugliest things anybody ever said to me, and that was in OA, and there were other instances too. But what I have here is a group of people more loving and more understanding, not because your character is supersedes the character of other people, but because you've been through hell in a handbasket and you have not only known what it is to live in hell, you have known what it is to escape from hell because of the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. You have been to hell and back in a handbasket. And that is a gift that keeps on helping other people. And that is the language of the heart. We're going to be talking more about fellowship in the weeks to come. The tremendous fact for every one of us, I'm at the bottom of 17, last paragraph, is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. Notice it doesn't say brotherly and harmonious love. It doesn't say brotherly and harmonious prayer it doesn't say any of that it says we can we can uh, agree that we have a way out in which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action and what is that action that action is the working of the steps so that ultimately we can be harbingers of a message that is life-giving to the still suffering and the unknowing the people who don't know about this program that are coming in or the people that know about the program and they are suffering and dying of their untreated addiction and they're sitting right next to you in the meetings. They're dying of their untreated addiction and some of them have been in these rooms for years and years and years and years. And some of them have service positions and some of them have presented themselves as sponsors and they are remarkably bigger today than they were five years ago, 10 years ago, or 20 years ago and we have them sitting right there and we have got to understand that this action that they're talking about is to carry the message saint francis of assisi said see i'm a i'm a jewish boy from the north side of chicago and i love saint francis of assisi who's a jesuit priest isn't that funny but he said preach the gospel and if you must use words show them what the program is working for you. Recover, recover, and recover. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. Page 18. Now let's take a look. An illness of this sort, and we have come to believe in an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. Now, when I was a little boy, many of you have heard me say this before, when I was three and four and five years old, people would yell at my mother 
and they would yell at my father when I would go to the doctor. They would yell at my mother and yell at my father. What the hell's the matter with you? What are you letting them eat so much for? I remember going to the doctor when I was three or four, whatever it was, five, and the doctor was screaming about how my weight was not on the chart of children my age, that I was off the chart for children in my age group, and that my weight was a weight of a 10-year-old, and I was four or five years old, whatever it is, and my weight indicated that I was 10 years old. And they screamed and yelled at my mother, and they screamed and yelled at my father. But not one person, doctor, dentist, rabbi, whatever, medicine man, chakra, whatever it is, I don't know. Not chakra. What's the one that guides you up the mountain if you're going to climb Mount Everest or something? I know. I wish I was Larry was here. He could tell me. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, not one of them said to me, Harlan, you have an illness, and you have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. What they said to me was, you are weak. You are stupid. What's the matter with you? Don't you want to have a life? What are you eating so much for? Stop eating dessert. Stop eating ice cream. That wasn't helping me. That wasn't helping me. You, you can't scream at me and tell me to stop eating ice cream, and I'm four years old, and now I'm going to stop eating ice cream. All it made me want to do was eat more ice cream because my mind was looking for a way to negate the pain. And what I learned to do at a very early age, and I bet I'm not the only one on the phone that, that knows this, I just checked out emotionally. I wasn't in my body anymore. I knew that I could, I could just wait you out. And eventually, you'd get tired of screaming at me. So I got accustomed to just telling you what you wanted to hear. And inside, I was dying. And I kept getting this message over and over and over again that me, my mother, and my father are unacceptable the way we are that there is nothing valid about us, that there's nothing valuable to us because they are weak and stupid for letting me eat this way. I am weak and stupid because I eat this way. And if I had any willpower or character at all, I would stop eating Butterfinger bars. I would stop being so interested in food. And they would tell me useless, stupid inapplicable things like every time you want to go eat a Butterfinger bar, you just think about being a baseball player. You just think about being a football player and you want to score the winning touchdown and you can't score the winning touchdown if you eat the Butterfinger bar. How stupid is that? How ignorant is that? And not one of you who's in recovery would tell me something like that. And I tried to do that as a little boy. I tried to do that, and I couldn't do it. And I went into life thinking I was going to die. Why should I try hard in school? Why should I try hard in life? Why should I give a damn about all these various things? I'm just going to be dead. Because everybody kept telling me, you're going to die. You're going to die. 
you hear that enough and you're five years old, you hear that enough and you're six and seven, you start to believe it. And why in the hell would I not believe it? Because nobody ever disputed it. Fat people don't live very long. It was a fact. It was a material fact. If a person has cancer, page 18, all are sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness. For with it there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. Annihilation is the key word there. Doesn't say, it doesn't say anything short of annihilation. It doesn't say they get spoiled. It doesn't say they get sidetracked. It doesn't use gentle language. The language that they use is language that indicates an annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. I remember when I was in seventh grade, and my friends, the girls and the boys, they would organize make-out parties, and they would organize all K, you know, all, all manner of all this crazy stuff. I was never included in that. I was never included in the things that they were doing like that, the boy-girl kind of things. Never. Never. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. And the closer you were to me, the more pain I was going to bring to you. Because there were people who loved me that were genuinely scared for me. They were genuinely scared that I was going to die and that I couldn't do the things that other kids could do, and it made them feel bad. In other situations, I would lie to you, and I would take your money, and I would write bad checks to you, and I would hurt you, and I would manipulate you because I am a very sick person. I am a very, very sick person. And the closer you were to me, if your life touched me, you were going to suffer pain as the result of it. Financial insecurity was the tip of the iceberg for me. I was always working on some form of commission. I remember when I was a vendor at the ballpark. Wasn't anywhere close to my top weight yet, but I was still three, 400 pounds. And these guys would be doing 20, 25 cases of beer in a night game, and I'd be doing seven. Because I couldn't move. I couldn't walk, and I was too interested in the food. And that would carry through for the rest of my life. I was much more interested in eating Twinkies, eating cookies, things like that, than I was in anything like making money. Disgusted friends. There were people who were disgusted by me. There were people who were disgusted disgusted by me because I broke their furniture. I broke their car interior. I didn't look very good in their wedding picture. I was always the fattest guy in the, in the environment. They were disgusted with me and employers. And I had a couple of employers tell me right to my face, if you weren't so morbidly obese, we would put you in management, but we can't do that. You look horrible. Not once did that happen to me. It happened twice. <clears throat> warp lives of blameless children. Now, I don't think my daughter doesn't speak, to, I don't think she has a fragmented relationship with me because of this disease. I think she has a fragmented uh, relationship with me for other reasons which I don't know and I don't think she knows either. Sad wives and parents, my parents fought like cats and dogs. 
they fought like cats and dogs. But there was one time when they would stop fighting. There was one time when they would work together as a team, and that was to, to try to bring my eating under some modicum of control. They were both scared. They loved me very, very much, and they just didn't know what to do. They just didn't know what to do. But when it came to what are we going to do about Harlan and his eating, they were a team. Of course, nothing they did ever worked. Anyone can increase the list. We hope this volume will inform and comfort those who are or who may be affected. There are many. Very important to remember that this volume, this book, is going to give me comfort. It's going to give me hope. Remember we talked about in Bill's story, I saw... I felt, I believed. What did he see? He saw a man who he knew to be an alcoholic, sober and happy in his release. What did he feel? He felt hope for the first time in his adult life. What did he believe? He believed that if he did what Ebby was doing, he too could get sober and stay that way. I saw, I felt, I believed. I saw somebody who had recovery. I felt hope and I believed that there was reason that I could celebrate recovery too. Highly competent psychiatrists, middle of 18, who have, had, who have dealt with us have found it sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss his situation without reserve. Now, why would we tell anybody like a psychiatrist or a therapist or a doctor or a clergyman or a friend or anyone, anything like the truth? Because what you find excuse me, is you find over time that that is a waste, that they just don't get it. Even today, there are times when I will forget to take off my recovery hat and I will start telling somebody outside these rooms, somebody will say, so-and-so went on a diet. And I'll say, well, I hope he, I hope he's successful, but We've seen this a hundred times. He's got to get into recovery, and they'll say, no, no, you don't get it. This time he joined a gym, and this time he's going to the weight loss center, and the, he's really serious this time. And you don't explain anything to them because you know the person they're talking about is, in untreated, is an untreated compulsive overeater and that this is just another one of these vain attempts. You don't, you just don't want to get into it with them because it's an absolute waste of time. But with you, we understand. We totally get it. Strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us even more unapproachable than do the psychiatrist and the doctor because you don't want to load the gun. You don't want to sit and have a discussion with these people because you know damn well they don't get it. And they never will. They never will get it. Uh, I'm single now, and I'm trying to look around, maybe, you know, whatever. 
I don't know that I could get involved with somebody who wasn't in these rooms. This is such a big part of my life. I don't know that I could. How do you explain the biggest part of your life to somebody who you're going to be that close to and that you know that as much as they try, they're not going to get it? I don't know how one does that. I really don't. I don't get it. I don't know how a person shares a life with somebody who's not in these rooms. Maybe that'll be my fate. Maybe it won't. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. But let's listen to the next paragraph. It must be pretty important because it's in italics. But the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. Let's take a look at the meeting that happened on Mother's Day, 1935. And let's take a look at the Cyberling Gatehouse at 5 p.m., May 13, 1935. In comes Dr. Bob and Ann Smith and Little Smitty, Robert Jr., and Susan Smith. The four of them came in to have Mother's Day dinner at Henrietta Cyberling's house. In the home was Henrietta Cyberling and Bill Wilson and Henrietta Cyberling's son, who would later become a congressman from Ohio. And if you go to Dr. Bob's home in Akron, there is a plaque on the outside of the house designating Dr. Bob's house as a national historical landmark. And it says a resolution was brought before Congress by Representative Cyberling, of Ohio to do so. This was Henrietta Cyberling's son who was in the home the day that Dr. Bob met Bill Wilson. He became the congressman and his mother was far too uh, sick and late and old to travel to Washington DC. So he read a letter to Congress from his mother who arranged everything. Of course, God arranged it. It wasn't really her. She was just doing God's work. And they passed the resolution to make uh, that house on Ardmore Street in Akron a national landmark. Why am I talking about this? What did Bill bring to Bob? Did Bill bring to Bob an admonition not to drink? Nope. Bob had been prayed over and hands and laying on hands. They had Oxford group meetings, Harvey Firestone of Firestone Tires. Harvey Firestone had a son that was an alcoholic. And Harvey Firestone in Akron paid money out of his pocket to bring these Oxford group guys through so that maybe one of them could touch his son and get him sober, and none of them could. And they had a special meeting. What are we going to do about Dr. Bob? And they prayed about Dr. Bob. 
and they prayed for guidance. That's why when Bill Wilson called up Henrietta and said, I'm a rum hound from New York, and I'm a rum hound, and I need another drunk to talk to. A rum hound is a drunk. She wasn't shocked. She wasn't surprised. She expected it. She was a woman of faith. She had prayed about this. What was her response? She says, oh, come on over. I have just the fellow for you to talk to. Just like that, matter of fact, come on over. I have just the fellow for you to talk to. I'm just as matter of fact as matter of fact is. Here she's a woman, a woman inviting a man to come to her house. Could you imagine? She's inviting a man to come to her house. She doesn't know this guy from first base. It just made sense to her. But what did Bill Wilson bring, Dr. Bob? What did Ebby bring Bill? What did the person bring to you that gave you the message? They brought you first before they gave you information. They gave you identification. What does that mean? Is the first chapter in the book how it works? No. Is the first chapter in the book into action? No. The first chapter of the book is Bill's story, right? It used to be the doctor's opinion, then they moved it. Why did they move it? Because uh, Dr. Silkworth was not an alcoholic, and they wanted the body of the book to be for alcoholics by alcoholics. See, that's why they moved it. But the first chapter in the book now is Bill's story. Why? So you can identify in. Why are you listening to me now? Why are you on the phone listening to me now? Would you listen to me if this was a phone call about fixing an engine or, or, uh, or how to put a door in? I don't know about those things. I'm not a mechanic. You're listening because you can identify with some of the denominators that join you and me. Now, if you took a look at us, I'm just going to use my friend Maria as an example. I love my friend Maria. I'm just going to use her as an example because I know she wouldn't mind. She's from Dublin, Ireland. She's beautiful. She's way younger than me. What do, you, what do me or Maria have in common? Basically nothing. We're not the same religion. We're not the same country. We don't have the same background. We don't have pretty much anything the same. Nothing. But I can sit down with my friend Maria, and I can have a conversation. And, and it could be in Arizona, it could be in Newark, it could be in Dublin, it could be in Cork, it could be in, on the moon. It wouldn't matter where it was. Maria and I can have a conversation that will go on and on and on and on. Why? Because we can identify with one another. Bill Wilson didn't bring Bob Smith one piece of information except, well, there was two that he brought him. I'll get into that in a minute. What did Bill Wilson bring him? He brought him identification. You see, Dr. Bob wasn't feeling very good that day because he was just plowed the day before. He was soused the day before Mother's Day. He brought his wife a potted plant, and the famous description by Ann Smith is, Smitty brought me a potted plant for Mother's Day, and he's potted underneath the table. 
and he peed in his pants, and he laid there on the floor underneath the table and slept it off. Bob Smith had heard it all. But what did Bill Wilson bring? He said to his family, going to give this guy 15 minutes. He was feeling pretty thirsty that day because he had just been drunk the day before. So you know if you're an alcoholic, he wasn't feeling very good, was he? They were up there for five hours. And they were so bonded after five hours that Bill Wilson was able to check out of the Mayflower and move into the Smith home. What did he bring him? He brought him information. Oh, I told you there were two pieces of information. Even though Dr. Smith was a doctor, he didn't know about the twist of the mind, nor did he know about the physical allergy. It made sense to him once Bill told him. It made perfect sense to him as a physician that what Bill was telling him was true, was absolutely true. But he didn't know that. See, he didn't know about the allergy, and he didn't know about the twist of the mind because he didn't have the doctor's opinion to read, and he, he didn't have the, that chapter of the book. It wasn't written yet, see? But Bill Wilson brought Dr. Bob himself. And you see, when Dr. Bob came down from the, from the, uh, from the study, and he came downstairs, and he says, Annie, and he pointed to Bill Wilson, this is the first fella that ever understood my drinking. Now, why is that funny? Why is that funny? Because for five hours, Bill Wilson never said one word about Dr. Bob's drinking. Not a word. He only talked about his drinking, his beat meaning Bill Wilson's drinking. And there are things that when you're eating or you're starving yourself, I have a friend of mine, and she lives in California. And she's wonderful. And she's, she's had some health challenges lately that are frightening for us who love her. There are health challenges that are serious health challenges. And we're concerned. We're very concerned. But she can see things and hear things that only the anorexic can hear and see and smell. I can't hear them and see them and smell them because I'm not anorexic. But she's an anorexic. So she can see things and smell things and she experiences things from the anorexic side that I don't understand. But you wouldn't know it to look at her, but she is a dumpster diving, compulsive overeater, and if she was in your dumpster looking for food, all you'd see are two shoes and two ankles wiggling around, and she'd be in the dumpster looking through your dumpster for the food. Little tiny thing, but gutter, back alley, sewer, compulsive overeater to the max. And I know because I've been here for 41 years. Trust me, I, I, trust me, she's dumpster diving compulsive overeater. Trust me. But she knows things that only the anorexic and the bulimic know. 
And that's what you bring to the table. You see, the age of miracles is still upon us so that you who are listening to this, whether you're listening to this on uh, on, t- on the podcast or you're listening to this as I'm doing it on the phone here on June the 6th, which is D-Day, June the 6th, 2020. 6th of June by the light of the moon. They came to Normandy. So there are things we know about as compulsive overeaters that others can identify with. And so Dr. Bob and Bill changed the world, and the first step in that change was identification. Identification one to the other. And always remember that before anyone is going to care about what you know, they must know that you care. Before anyone is going to care what you know, they must know that you care. And you care by displaying that empathy, and you identify one to the other. One to the other. That's why it says in Chapter 7, they share about themselves, you share about yourself, but you go first. You go first. You go first. You share about yourself. Now, does that mean it's important for you to know that in 1972, I went to Mather High School in Chicago, and in 1976, I graduated, or 77, I think, I graduated Roosevelt University in Chicago. You probably couldn't care less about that. You probably that, That's probably information that you'll forget right away because it's not meaningful to you. you. You don't care about that stuff. Here's what you care about. I might have eaten the way you ate, and I might have I might have thought the way you think, and I might have lived the way you lived. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, there is somebody out there that you can help, but you won't know until you try. And maybe there's more than one person that you can help. The reason we're going very slow It's because this is a chapter that is too overlooked and too written off and too ignored. And we're going to look at this chapter as best we can, but I'm telling you we're going to go slow. Let's continue, though, for today. Page 18, the bottom. That the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty, identification. That he obviously knows what he's talking about, identification that his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with a real answer, identification, that he has no attitude of holier-than-thou, identification, nothing whatever except a sincere desire to be helpful, identification, that there are no fees to pay, no axes to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions which we have found most effective And after such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. You are God's miracle, but in order to keep it, you must pass it on. You must pass it on. 
There is nothing for you in keeping it to yourself because you will not be able to keep it to yourself. You must give the entire product away. If you don't give the entire product away, you cannot keep any of it. There is nothing in the way of keeping it to yourself that is going to work. Some of you may be scared to sponsor, and as our friend in New Jersey says, I'd be scared not to. This is a 12-step program. Now, I'm not saying you should be sponsored. If you're not in recovery, no, obviously not. Or if you're just getting started, no, absolutely not. Of course not. But if you've worked through the steps, now it's time for you to start sponsoring. If you've had a spiritual awakening, None of us thinks, none of us makes a sole vocation of this work, nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. We feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Let's take that line, and we're going to come back to it. Just keep that to the side. A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. All of us spend much of our spare time in the sort of effort which we are going to describe. A few are fortunate enough to be so situated that they can give nearly all their time to the work. Now, you hear this a lot in OA. You hear abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception. I'm not saying abstinence is not important. I'm not saying abstinence isn't vital to your survival. I'm not saying that. But abstinence is not alone in and of itself the goal. Abstinence in and of itself cannot be the end destination. If it is, you're screwed. Because what is it saying? That a much more, demonst a much more important demonstration of our steps, that's the principles, lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. What is he saying there? That you will practice these principles in all of our affairs. Let's go back to page 14. Now, he just told us in, chap in page 19 that the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Let's go to page 14. At the bottom it says, My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles, what are the principles, they're the steps, in all my affairs. Now, do you see a similarity there? Do you see a repetition? In, in education, that's called spiraling the information. It's repetition. And the sincerest form of teaching and learning is through repetition. So he says, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs, particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. Go back to page 19. 
That paragraph in Bill's story is a paragraph we're going to be going back to all the time because what it's doing is it's reminding me that abstinence alone cannot be the most important thing in my life without exception. The most important thing in my life without exception has to be to pass this information incessantly to others. Because the only way I'm going to retain this information is through constant repetition and teaching it to others. I do not learn this program as a student as much as I learn it as a teacher. That doesn't make any sense, but it's true. It's counterintuitive. The word for that is it's counterintuitive. But if I wanted to know something about real estate, I would go to somebody who teaches classes in real estate. If I wanted to know something about dentistry, I would go to a dental professor and I would ask that person about this. That's who I would go to. So we have to know that until we come to a point where we can teach this incessantly to the, to the sick compulsive overeater, we don't have a chance because the information is going to be forgotten. How many of you could quote me chapter and verse, the calorie count, the nutritional value of everything from zebra meat to aardvark meat? Most of you could do it. Most of you have more knowledge of, of nutrition than most nutritionists do. Most of you have more knowledge of cooking and food and you've got volumes and volumes in your home of books on the subject you have enough information to write one of your own and yet there you are compulsively overeating maybe not now hopefully but at times you were you were compulsively overeating with all that knowledge why because you weren't helping someone else have a spiritual awakening. And you have a mental blank spot. And the mental blank spot is the built-in forgetter. I forget what the food does to me. And I can only focus in on what the food does for me. And what that Reese's peanut butter cup does for me. What that french fry does for me is euphoric it gives me an instant sense of ease and comfort that nothing else gives me until one day you gave me a book and you held my hand and you said it doesn't matter how many times you've relapsed. It doesn't matter how much you've weighed. It doesn't matter that you've written bad checks. It doesn't matter that you've lied when the truth would have served you better. It doesn't matter that you've been a bad person in a lot of ways. It doesn't matter that you were abusive to your mother. It doesn't matter what you look like. What matters is do you want to recover, and if you do, we'll help you. And some of you didn't judge me. You just loved me. And some of you just welcomed me. And some of you made me feel for the first time in my life that there was hope for somebody like me. And some of you didn't look like me. 
Some of you looked very, very normal. And some of you were people that when I would sit in these rooms, I would wonder to myself, what in the hell is this person doing here? I know why I'm here. I know why I'm here. I can't understand why this person is here until you opened up your mouth. And when you opened up your mouth and you started sharing your story with me, now I could understand. Now I could relate. And once I related to you, the bridge was built. The bridge was built. If you can get somebody's head going up and down or get them laughing, the shortest distance between two people is a straight laugh. If you can get somebody's head going up and down, you've got them. You've got them. Because once they relate to you and you relate to them, the rest of it's downhill. Page 19. If we keep on the way we are going, there is little doubt that much good will result. But the surface of the problem would hardly be scratched. Those of us who live in large cities are overcome by the reflection that close by hundreds are dropping into oblivion every day. Many could recover if they had the opportunity we have enjoyed. How then shall we present that which has been so freely given us? How do we present it? The first three things in how to present it are recover, recover, and recover. We're dealing with step one here. We've talked a lot about step 12, but we're dealing with step one. Don't forget that. This chapter is about step one, but it relates very closely to step 12. We have concluded to publish an anonymous volume setting forth the problem as we see it. What is the problem? The problem is an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. We shall bring to task the, com, our combined experience and knowledge. This should suggest a useful program for anyone concerned with a drinking problem. If you have suspicion and you're not sure, are you a compulsive overeater? Here is the test. Can you control the amount you eat once you've started? Once you start eating your binge foods, my binge foods, just French fries, um, anything fried, really. I mean, you could fry up bricks and I would eat them. Um, anything fried, breaded and fried, um, ice cream, uh, cookies, chocolate, cake, something, anything with sugar and fat, frosting, anything like that. When I eat that, it looks at first, like maybe I could just have one or two. When I eat the first one, I might eat it like a madman who hasn't eaten for 10 years. When I eat the second one, I'm going to inhale it. When I eat the third one, you're not even going to see it. It's just going to go in there through some kind of osmosis. And on and on and on. And the more of them I eat, the more I want. And the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want. And it's just endless. If you relate to that and the mental twist, the mental twist is that part of you. 
that is sending the signal for you to eat the food, even though you know intellectually that the food is killing you. It says in the doctor's opinion, we know that it's injurious, but we cannot after time tell the true from the false. What does that mean? That means that that chocolate is in front of you, and you know damn well chocolate has never brought you anything good. Never. But this time you're going to tell yourself it's going to be okay. Just like that proverbial jaywalker, over and over and over again, he's going to keep trying the same thing, the same thing, over and over and over again. And you keep trying that same experiment of eating and hoping that this time it's going to be different. So if you can't eat because of the allergy and you can't keep from eating because of the twist of the mind, you are a compulsive overeater. Now, if you don't overeat, ask yourself this. Do you starve yourself? Do you use exercise bulimia? Do you use laxatives? Do you restrict in an unnatural way the food that should be going in your mouth that you need to fuel your life? Do you restrict it as a way of getting a high? My friend in California that I told you about, she gets a high from not eating. I can't relate to that. I can't relate to anybody that gets a high from not eating all I get from not eating is frustrated and, and, and abusive and crazy. When I'm not eating, I'm nuts. I'm, I'm half crazy, not half, I'm crazy. I'm absolutely crazy. Of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these things are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. Again and again and again in this book, we are going to be told that the secret ingredient of a good life is altruism. Altruism, not so secret. Where do we come from? We come from the Oxford group. The Oxford groupers were people that were practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. And Frank Buckman, who founded the Oxford groupers in England, he was a Lutheran minister, and he wanted to infuse enthusiasm. There's a good word. Enthusiasm, it comes from two Greek words, enthechos, from God and theos from God, enthusiasm into Christianity. And in China, when he was on a mission, he saw people that had regained their zeal for Christ. And how did they regain their zeal for Christ? 
They regained it through altruism, service with no expectation of return. And in infusing this enthusiasm, he believed that altruism was a major component to a good, healthy life. And so the Oxford groupers had a heavy influence on our book, on our, on our way of life. And over and over and over again in this book, remember we just read the bottom of 14, 15, that faith without works was dead, and how appallingly true for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through service and self-sacrifice for others, he would surely drink again, and if he drank again, he would surely die, then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. In other parts of the book, it says helping others is the foundation stone of our recovery. In other parts of the book, it says when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic will save the day. In another part of the book, it says if you have that imperious urge, meaning sex, if you have that imperious urge, perhaps you should work with another alcoholic instead. In another part of the book, it says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Are you getting the picture? What do I do tonight if all of a sudden I have a very strong urge to go eat Chips Ahoy cookies? Now, I don't have them in the house, but I've got money, and there's a grocery store three minutes from where I live. What if I have a tremendous urge to go get Chips Ahoy cookies? I better work with somebody. I better get out of myself. I better make an outreach call and be of service constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. This book is far, far ahead of its time, and it says to us something that is as poignant and as valuable today as it was a thousand years ago. Less thinking about ourselves, more thinking about others in a healthy way not in a sick way. What is the difference between a healthy and a sick way? The sick person uh, will say, I'm going to do this for you, but this is how I want you to behave. The, the, the sane person, the person who's in recovery says, I'm going to do this for you, and I don't care. Before we close, if you have a book in front of you, I want you to go to page 570, Appendix 3. Dr. Bauer. Dr. Bauer was in the American Medical Association. Page 570, we're going to close with this. Alcoholics Anonymous are no crusaders, not, nor, not a temperance society. They know that they must never drink. They help others with similar problems. In this atmosphere, the alcoholic often overcomes his excessive concentration upon himself, learning to depend upon a higher power and absorb himself in his work with other alcoholics. He remains sober day by day. The days add up into weeks, the weeks into months and years. What is he saying here? It is imperative 
it is absolutely imperative to get out of self. I'm going to stop the recording and unmute you guys.